the contemplation of using your, your shirt or your sleeve as your Kleenex, right? Because you just don't want to get up and have to, have to go get a Kleenex because your nose is running. And you know the amount of concentration it takes to balance a whole plate of food on your stomach while you're trying to, you know, be a couch potato without dropping, spilling anything on you. You, you understand that also. You realize that you... Um, you get elated when you realize and come to the realization that you found out you can get your groceries delivered to your house and you don't even have to get off the couch long enough to go out and shop for your own groceries. They just deliver it to the house or you can do DoorDash or some other form of uh, you know, retrieval of food. And you finally, you, you, you know the absolute nightmare of when your cable or your internet goes out. Like it's just, it's over with, right? If you're a couch potato, you just know that that is like, that's the worst fear of all is that the internet or the cable go out. So those of you who are couch potatoes who have children, we call children couch potatoes tater tots. And so that's what we're talking about today. All right. It is the biblical term for a couch potato is the word slothful or slothfulness. Um, when we think about somebody who's slothful, we think about somebody who does nothing. It's not that you don't do anything. It's just that you don't tend to do the most important things. Uh, you tend to spend a lot of time on things that really have no meaning or bearing in your life in the long run. Uh, for example, sitting and watching TV all day, right? So how is that going to improve your life? How is that going to improve your marriage or your relationship with your kids or your job or whatever? It, it, there's no improving there because it's just, just kind of what you do. You're just kind of biding time. And so you may be thinking, uh, some people would call slothfulness laziness. Right? That's a term that we'd be familiar with. And somebody said, why would you talk about laziness? That nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, my life is so busy anymore. I don't have time for anything. I couldn't put one more thing in my calendar because I, you know, I'm running my kids everywhere to sporting events and practices. And I mean, even to try to exercise, I got to get up at five o'clock in the morning and try to get that in. And psychologists are always telling us, you know, hey, people, you know, you just slow down, chill out, smell the roses as you're going through life. What do you mean lazy? We're not lazy. We're anything but lazy in America. We've got more stuff to do and more stuff on our calendars than we could probably accomplish in a lifetime. Again, slothfulness, laziness, it doesn't mean that you, you don't do anything or, you, or that your, your life is so overextended. The problem is your life is overextended in areas that really are not the most important areas that you ought to extend your life. So on your outline, here's the way I define uh, slothfulness. It's being lazy about the most important things in life. Slothfulness has little to do with work or even the pace of life. It has everything to do with what is most important in life. If you were to look in the Bible, what does God say about the most important things in life? Well, number one be relationships, right? Everything in this world is temporary. Everything in this world will go away, but people were designed by God for eternity, and therefore um, relationships are of topmost importance in God's eyes, right? He created us to relate to him. He created us to have relationships with other people. Purpose in life is a, a, another huge area of our lives. Responsibility, spirituality, that is growing in your spiritual life and walk with God. You can... You can be uber, uber busy doing a thousand different things, 
But yet your relationship with God is on the back burner of your life and it's going nowhere. And so we, we substitute a lot of things in life that keep us overly busy, but we neglect and we negate some of the most important things in life. This is what the Bible means when it uses the term being slothful. So I want us to look uh, in a couple of different places in Mark chapter 14, and we're going to go to Matthew 25. Jesus talked about this, okay? So he, I want to talk about the attributes of slothfulness. In other words, there are, there's a seductive side to, to, um, to being slothful. Now, I know we saw the video of the cute sloths. I get that. I understand that. But uh, there's an incident that takes place in, in uh, Mac, Mark chapter 14, and we're going to look at it. This is uh, for those of you who maybe are familiar with this, maybe you're not. Uh, Jesus has come to the end of his ministry here on earth, and he knows that he's about to die. And so he gathers his disciples together, and they go into an upper room, and they celebrate Passover together. And right after that, um, Jesus heads towards, um, is heading into Jerusalem, and he stops at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's wrestling inside of himself as to whether or not he can you know, accomplish this thing of death by way of the cross. And so in verse 32, chapter 14, it says, they went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Now that term deeply distressed and troubled, it's really the picture here and where we get the name Gethsemane, it's like a wine press that is pressing down the grapes, like just squeezing the life out of the grapes. So what Jesus is facing is so troublesome and so pressing on him, it's almost like life is being literally squeezed out of him. That's the intensity here that's going on. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so what is this cup he's referring to? It's the, it was the third cup in the Passover meal. It's the cup of suffering. It's the cup of God's wrath that's going to be poured out upon Jesus. Not because Jesus had sinned, but because of our sin, God's wrath had to be satisfied and justified, and therefore Jesus was about to drink that cup and then he returned to his disciples and found them, what? Sleeping. And Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for an hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the, the body is so weak. So I want us to look at a couple of things here um, as we've read so far about slothfulness. Being a sloth, if you're not careful, and the reason why the Bible lists it, or the reason why we, we categorize this as one of the seven deadly sins is because it can make you lethargic to love. Being a sloth can make you lethargic to love. Again, Jesus is facing his final hours on earth. He's about to be betrayed right after this garden experience. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be taken through a kangaroo trials all throughout the night, and he is going to be crucified, right? He, he's going to sacrifice his life for the sins of the world and so he goes to the garden and pray and prayer. But notice who he takes. He takes Peter, James, and John, who are his inner circle of the 12 disciples. I mean, these are the guys that's always got his back. I mean, these are the guys that Jesus poured himself into, and he's trusting his deeply committed disciples to help him, to support him with their presence, 
to pray for him while he's praying over what is about to take place, to minister to him, to demonstrate their love to him. I mean, he's counting on them for this. But as we read in the scripture, Jesus comes back and they're not doing any of that, right? They're, they're asleep. They, they're tired and they're wore out. And Jesus says to Peter in verse 37, he says, oh, Simon, are you asleep? Could you, not, could you not keep watch for one hour? I mean, you'll almost hear the compassion and maybe even the hurt and the angst in Jesus's voice. I brought you guys, my inner circle, to minister, to help, to pray, to undergird me in my toughest hour of my life here on earth thus far. And you guys are sleeping. You're not helping me one bit. And many of us, probably if we were one of those three disciples, we would we'd be embarrassed, we'd be kind of convicted about the fact that we, it seems like we've let Jesus down in his greatest moment of need, and so we would, what, we would determine in our hearts, like, you know what, I'm going to stay away. I'm going to do whatever I got to do. If I got to sit on a cushion of needles, I would have sat on it, so I can stay away for Jesus. And as we read further in this passage, we know that Jesus comes back a second time, and they're asleep all over again. Now picture yourself in this situation, would you be able to stay awake? Out of your love for Christ and out of the need that he has in this moment in time, would you be able to stay awake or would you become slothful? Would you become lethargic and apathetic and complacent to the point that, eh, I'm going to sleep? So picture it this way. You're coming home after a hard day's work and you're tired, you've had a rough day on the job, you realize that behind that front door, as you're entering into your house, there is your wife and there is your children. I'm speaking to the men, and so you, you know that you're confronted with a situation here. You have an opportunity to walk through that door, even though you've had a rough day at work, you are dead dog tired, and you just really don't want to engage, but you have the opportunity to walk through that door and you can express love to your family in a lot of different ways. You can engage in conversation with your wife and offer to help her in the kitchen, or you can engage with the children and uh, help them with their homework, and later on you can help them with their bath, help them you know, get, have their prayer time, tuck them in bed. You have all these opportunities in front of you to express love because the Bible says that love is a verb. It is an action. It is something that we do. It's not just something that we feel. Even though you're tired, like maybe the disciples were tired in this moment in time, and you have all that opportunity right in front of you, but you walk through the door, you grab your paper or magazine, you grab your remote in the other hand, you sit back in your recliner, you turn on ESPN, you start scrolling through your phone on Facebook or Twitter, whatever it is it might be, and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, if, I, if I'm lucky at all, in 15 minutes I'll be out and asleep. Now let's just say... For argument's sake that you do that. How do you suppose your wife is feeling? She's in there cooking dinner. She's had these kids all day long. She's had no break. And now all of a sudden you, you are in your chair. You are asleep and you are out. I'm thinking she's probably going to be a little ticked. I don't know. Maybe this is a little bit how Jesus felt. Uh, certainly let down. And so the opportunities to express love 
if you're in that situation, goes right out the window. Not because you are a mean person, not because you are a cruel person, not because you want to intentionally harm your wife or your children, but simply because you have become, become slothful. In other words, when you walk through that door, the most important needs were right in front of you in relationships, your wife and your kids, but you bypassed that and went straight for the comfort chair. This is what slothfulness does to us. You know, many people have problems in their relationships and especially in their marriages because we become slothful. We just become lazy. We we just take things for granted. We take one another for granted and we walk in there and we have opportunities to minister in, in ways of, of acting out in love and doing things for one another and having genuine conversation or spending time with the person who needs us. I mean, are you, is your marriage in need of a little spice and creativity? Do you, do you even recognize the fact that, that things aren't going too well in your relationship? Well, slothful people know we don't because we're thinking about number one, you know, numero uno, myself, and so I just dive in the chair and you know whatever my needs are and just kind of let things go. And I love, love though the Bible says takes work. Love takes intentional decisions. Love takes means that I have to set aside commitment and time. I give you an example out of my own life, but you know as I was preparing to go on this trip. Um, last week. Prior to that, my wife says to me, she says, you know what? Uh, she's got a little aggravated at me. Can't imagine why. Got a little aggravated at me. Perfect husband. Come on. Uh, got a little aggravated at me. And she says, you know what? She says, you're already gone. You've already, you've already left for the trip. But no, this is like a week out. You know, you're, you're not here. You're here, but you're not here. Your mind is somewhere else. Now, I have an opportunity to do one of two things. Either I can just blow her off and say, ah, well, she'll get over it. Or because I know that her love language is time spent together, I can make a concerted effort to try and engage with her and make her know, that, no, I'm present, I'm present in the moment, I want to be present with you, and to act in ways and do things that says to my wife, I want to spend quality time and be engaged with you in our time together here. How did I do? I am not going to tell you. Love becomes non-existence, existent, and marriages collapse primarily because most people do not work hard enough to create love and to build relationships. We just get lazy. We get out of our, can't get out of our stuffed chair. We're riveted in front of the TV. We become passive observers of our families. You want to add spice to your marriage. You want to revigorate your 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 relationship and your family. Like you can just do this. Take. Just sit down and say, what are the top five things I could do every day to help express love to my family, to my wife, to my children? What are, what are some things I can do? And think about that, write it down, and make a concerted effort to actually do them. That's what keeps love alive. That's what keeps the flame going. It's when we become lethargic and when we become slothful, we just let things like kind of, it's like a roller coaster. We just kind of let it ride on its own but you know a roller coaster it climb climb climbs and then everything's downhill and so that's the way we put a lot of effort on the front end in our relationships to get you know somebody to love us and to get in marriage and the honeymoon and it's all great we're climbing the mountain but then all of a sudden once we've gotten married 
And guys, for us, it's like, okay, we've conquered this mountain. Now let's go on to the next thing. And we just kind of let love and marriage roll on its own with no effort and no work. Somebody said to me, like, Pastor, if I really love somebody and they really love me, it just should be automatic. I shouldn't have to work at it. That is not true. You worked at Gideon falling in love. You better keep working at staying in love. Otherwise, it'll stop working for you. And roller coasters go downhill. So will your marriage and your relationships, even with your children. So you have to be very careful and very aware that slothfulness can make you lethargic to love. It's not that the disciples didn't love Jesus. They loved him passionately. And it's not that you don't love your spouse or your children. You love them passionately. You would lay down your life for them, but you're not displaying it in real practical everyday ways. That's where Jesus challenges us. Here's the second thing. Being a sloth can make you too sluggish to stand. Too sluggish to stand. He says to Simon, he says, could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. I know that the spirit is willing, but the body is, is weak. And so I want you to notice the tenses here. He says, could you not, you know, could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray. And, and the tense here is keep watching, keep praying, keep watching, keep praying. Don't give up. I need you right now. I need you to stand in the gap for me. I need you to be the intercessor on my behalf. I, I need you to help me through this period in my life. And Jesus says, why do this? Because he says, lest you enter into temptation. Now, Jesus knew a lot about temptation. When he began his earthly ministry, he had to go head to head, toe to toe with Satan himself in the wilderness. Now, in preparation for that moment, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was fasting. That means he's not eating, and therefore, you know, every time his body said, man, I want something to eat, he said he had to say no to his body. Man, I would really like this, a no to the body, no to the drink, no to anything. He's preparing himself for this head-to-head -head meeting with Satan himself, this great temptation, as Satan is going to seek to get Jesus to bypass his messiahship. And uh, this is the same thing Satan does with us. He always wants to take an alternative route. And so I, here's what I want you to see is that Jesus kept saying no. He kept denying himself for 40 days. In fact, when Satan came and gave the big temptations, three of them, right? One after the other. Jesus was able to stand strong. He was able to stand tall. He was able to say, no, this is not God's will. This is not what I desire. And so he would quote scripture and says, you know, I'm living according to God's word. I'm living according to God's will. Here's what I want you to see. Before Satan came at him with the three big temptations, Jesus had already built up a defense by learning to say no to the everyday hunger pains that were barking at him, eat something, eat something, 
Jesus, what is the first thing Satan said to Jesus? Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus could have done that. And so that was the temptation that he fought with himself. Man, I'm awful hungry. I just think I'll just, you know, turn the stone into some bread, have a little. No, he says no to the body, no to the body, no to the body. Here's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Listen, if you don't learn how to say no to the little things in life, when Satan comes at you with the big temptation, you will not have the power or the ability to say no to that. You see, loss, they, 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 I mean, it's, if we say yes to every dessert that comes along, if we say yes to every exaggerated sales pitch, if we say yes to every opportunity to pad your expense account, what makes us think that we're going to say no when Satan throws his big punches? They won't. And this is what he's, Jesus is saying to his disciples, guys, if you can't even stay awake for an hour, what are you going to do when Satan comes at you with something big? You're not going to be able to stand this. Spirit's willing. Man, the body is so, so weak. And so Peter, years later, long after um, Long after Peter had fallen asleep here in the Garden of Gethsemane, long after Peter would deny Jesus three times, and long after Peter was restored by Jesus back into ministry, here's what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Listen, resistance is active. Vigilance is active. Steadfastness is active. Slothfulness is not. See, a slothful person just gives in to anything and everything. It's like, oh, this will make me feel good. That's what I want. Okay, I'm just going to do. And you just keep rolling over and over every time you're tempted with anything. You just yield to it. You give over to it. You just say, oh, okay, it's all right. But as the Bible says, I can confess it to God. He's faithful and righteous to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So why? Big deal. What's the big deal? What's the issue here? And so slothfulness is refusing to pay attention at times to what is really important. And so then we begin praying slothful prayers. For example, a slothful person will pray a prayer of supplication, a prayer of asking God for something. And so usually the prayer goes something like this, you know, um, Father, I, I really need you right now to deliver me from my bad temper. I, I really need you to deliver me from my, my sexually impure thoughts, or I really need you to deliver me in whatever you fill in the blank with. And so you, you pray that, the slothful person will pray that prayer thinking in their mind that if I pray that prayer, then God's just going to do this magical personality overhaul on me and I'll never deal with those issues again. Eh. Hello? That's not the way God works. We must daily take our stand for righteousness against evil, wrong attitudes, and bad behaviors. Jesus said, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, you've got to take up your cross every day. The cross is a death to self. You have to learn. And if you learn in the little things of life how to say no to it and how to 
stand for what is right and to stand and say no to this and no to this, then when the big things come and Satan really hits you hard with something that he knows that if he can entangle you in this sin, that it could be the ending of your marriage. It could be the ending of the respect of your children. It could be the ending of a lot of things, your testimony to the world about your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're going to be ready for that size temptation, you had better build yourself up and learn it through the little things. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. God, you're going to be tempted all kinds of ways. I'm about to hand this whole thing over to you and you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the othermost parts of the world. Everything hinges upon your ability to stand strong in the faith because Satan's going to come after you and he's going to hit you hard. You can't withstand this. Not the spirit's willing, but I know the body's weak. So slothfulness, here's the third one, can make you too mellow to move. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. In verse 39, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They, they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my, my betrayer. When he says that the spirit is willing and the body is weak. <coughs> the older you become, the more you can relate to that. Excuse me, been fighting the cold all week. <clears throat> Few of us really want to pay the price of discipline. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. Um, sometimes we have to be disciplined because we have this built-in inertia that keeps us from moving. Right? We'd rather just look for the easy way out. We'd rather find the, 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 the safest path, the easiest way we can do something. Um, and so let's say, for example, you want to become an athlete in some area, whether it be baseball, football, a track star, whatever. You know, if, if you're really going to excel in those areas, you have to put in the discipline, right? If you're going to be a gymnast, um, they put hours and hours of discipline into what they become, right? It helps them to you know, those who made the Olympic team, for example, they've spent thousands and thousands of hours in preparation for that moment in time in which they, they, they jump in and they try out for that Olympic position. And so Jesus walks away the second time and he returns. And again, his top three disciples are asleep. The hour of action has now passed them by. Jesus comes back and now a third time they, they're asleep. So all, everything that could have been between Jesus and his disciples in this given moment in time, the opportunity's gone. Jesus says, it's time to go. Arise, we're getting up, we're getting out of here. My betrayer is coming. How many opportunities do we miss in life because we hesitate or we're looking for the easiest route or we don't want to move outside of our comfort zone? We want to be stretched in our faith. Um, and so, again, like an athlete, 
you have to be ready for the opportunity, right? When the opportunity arises, I mean, it's only for four years you have the opportunity to try out for an Olympic team. And, and when that opportunity arises, you want to be at the peak. You want to be at your best. You want to be, like, I mean, I, I, I'm peaking at that moment in my life. Because sometimes the Holy Spirit, when it says move, you need to move. You need to go and you need, you need to do it quickly. For example, on our motorcycle ride, we, had, we went through Chicago. We were actually going to go through downtown Chicago. Uh, but when we got near Chicago, we could see that the, the um, road into downtown Chicago was backed up for miles. So we took the outer belt around Chicago. Guess what? That was backed up for miles. We are an hour into this. is six lanes of traffic. We are an hour into this. My light is blinking on my motorcycle, which means I have less than a gallon of gas left. And there ain't nowhere to get off. And so um, I'm getting a little nervous. It's, it's blinking, it stops, it's blinking, it stops, and it's just like blinking, blinking, blinking. So I moved up to the front, Rick, who was leading our, our ride, and I said, dude, I've got to have fuel or we're going to be pushing my bike off this highway. And he goes, well, let's get through this and, and then we'll get off. I said, dude, I, I can't get through this. We are bumper to bumper. It's just like move a little bit. Like you move like five feet every you know, few 30 seconds or whatever. But I'd seen a sign about a, a gas station that was off to the right, and the next one beyond that was like 20 miles away. And so um, at that moment in time, uh, I, I, I don't see the gas station yet. I just know that there's one coming up somewhere. And so I literally, I, I'm in six lanes of traffic in Chicago. I'm laying hands on the tank of my motorcycle, praying that Jesus would multiply like he did the fish and the loaves. He would multiply some gas in my gas tank because I'm about to run. How do you push your motorcycle out of that traffic, first of all? And then how do you get somewhere to get gas and get back through that traffic on the other side and back up this side to even get to your bike? To even put, get, I'm thinking, Lord, you, you got to help me in this. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit said, look to your right and move. I looked at my right. There's three lanes of traffic. Then there's a concrete uh, median. It's kind of bowl-shaped. And three more lanes of traffic. I've got to get to that outer lane to get off the exit to hit that, that um, gas station that's right up there. And so at the, now if I had hesitated, I would have missed the moment. I'd still be in Chicago trying to get gas in my motorcycle. When the Holy Spirit said move, and I looked and I saw there wasn't a I had a break. I had a moment. And I mean, I just busted out and busted across all that traffic, all the, the median. I got all the way to the outside lane and got up into the gas station. And I had less than a fourth of a tank left. So uh, that means had I not made that move, I would definitely run out of gas before. It took us two and a half hours to get through that spot. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your prayers. Why do we put off so many decisions and, and tasks when, when the Spirit speaks to us? We have all kinds of excuses, right? I just, I just didn't have time. Too many interruptions. Um, I don't feel like it. I, I, this just isn't important to me. And we know that, that trouble lies with us, not our circumstances or, or our surroundings. It's what I call discomfort dodging. It's like when God says, I want you to move, I want you to do this. It's like 
but I don't want to move outside of my comfort zone. I'm comfortable where I'm at. I'm comfortable. See, that's what slothfulness will bring you into. It will bring you into a zone of comfort. And listen, you can't walk with Jesus. You can't follow the Holy Spirit and stay in your comfort zone because he's always going to be pushing you outside of that comfort zone, stretching your faith, asking you to move when God moves at the moment that God wants you to move. And it's always going to require a step of faith outside the comfort zone, dislodging yourself from that. But if you're a slothful, you won't do it. It just won't happen. You'll miss the opportunity. And so a slothful person is one who refuses like to begin a job, right? Uh, their motto is never do today what can be done tomorrow. In other words, procrastination, rationalization is a part of their makeup. Now, we all understand this. Like, you remember when you were in high school or in college and you had term paper to do, right? And, you know, like at the very beginning of the class uh, of that semester, the teacher gave you a syllabus and said, uh, this term paper's due uh, towards the end of the class, the end of the semester. So that means you had, you know, a couple months to get it done. But what did you do? You put it off, didn't you, right? Oh, I got plenty of time. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to think about it. And so then as the time draws nigh and you're like, oh, but, you know, it's okay. I still got several weeks. And then you got maybe a week. And then for some of you, it was like two days before or the night before, you're going to sit down and write this paper. And you do. And you just kind of, you write this haphazard paper and you kind of fudge your way through it and you just put a lot of fluff in there, a lot of stuff that really doesn't have anything to do with what you're writing about. And as you're writing that, you're mad at yourself and you're vowing to yourself, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to put this off again. I'm never. But you did it again, didn't you? We've all done that. Put things off that we know we should do at that moment in time. When I was in seminary, um, bless my wife's heart, she typed all my papers for me. I had a Greek class, and my professor in my Greek class required something of us that no other Greek professor required. We had to do a 50-page paper on a passage of Scripture. Like we had to break it down, do you know, um, all these diagrams, and it, it, was, it was a mess. Anyways, so he gave it to us the first semester, right? So, Mr. Procrastinator, um, yeah, put it off, put it off. Finally, I'm getting the paper done. I'm writing, 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 and Marla's typing, and I'm, you know, writing, and the editor, she's typing and writing it. When she typed the last page, and I put it in the binder, and I took it to my professor's office, I was less than 15 minutes from missing the deadline. That's what slothfulness does to you, right? Put it off, put it off, put it off. When you need to be getting busy and getting after it, a slothful person also does not complete his work, right? Rare event that a slothful person runs out of excuses, but if they do run out of excuses, they usually don't, they just get started, but they don't want to finish anything. Here's what Proverbs 12, 27 says, slothful man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of man is diligence. In other words, he catches his prey, but he refuses to cook it, and it spoils. Like, he just never finishes. Or here's Proverbs 19, 24, it says, a slothful person buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. In other words, you put your hand in the bowl with the food, but you never, you, just, you don't finish the task. This is the whole point is that slothfulness will keep you too mellow to move. 
You might begin something, but then you don't finish it. Or a softer person ignores opportunities. You know, Proverbs 24 talks about a, a farmer who's, who's sleeping, right? He's sleeping, sleeping. Nothing wrong with sleep and getting rest, but he sleeps right through the, the season of tilling up his ground and planting the seed and getting ready for a harvest. And so when harvest time comes, guess what? He ain't got no harvest. And now he's living in poverty because he was too lazy to prepare the soil for a harvest. The truth is, opportunities are quite rare and they're often outside of our control. But when God gives them to us, he wants us to be ready to move. So those are attributes. Now let's look at the accountability and I get five minutes here. So Matthew chapter 25, I'm not going to read these passages uh, just to share with you the story because here's what Jesus says. I mean, he gives us these um, these three parables that really help us understand this issue of, of slothfulness. Now they're pretty long parables, so I'm just going to paraphrase them instead of reading the passage and read this chapter later. And so here's the first one is what Jesus would say to us when it comes to slothfulness. He's saying, listen, there is no excuse for failing to prepare yourself. All right. In the parable of the 10 virgins, Jesus describes a group of bridesmaids who are waiting for the bridal parade. Now in a Jewish wedding, so um, an engagement would happen. The groom would go and he would start building a house or adding on to his parents' house was going to be the final, you know, living place of he and his bride and where they would have children to raise them. And so uh, the bridesmaids were to be with the bride and, and they were to be prepared. So when the groom came to receive his bride, now they didn't know exactly what time. They had an idea and he would send out a, 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 a crier, you know, that would say, hey, the bridegroom is going to be coming shortly, coming short. So their responsibility was, because it always took place at night, is that they'd have lamps of oil, they'd have oil in the lamps, and they would, the bridegroom would come and receive his bride. The bridesmaids would light the way back to the groom's home that he has prepared, and that's when the wedding feast would take place, which, which usually lasted about a week. And so it was a huge, huge celebration. And so the, the bridesmaids have one job. So Jesus says there were 10 bridesmaids, five of them, they were prepared, right? They had oil in their lamps, they were ready to go. Five of them were airheads and unwise, and they were too busy thinking, you know, working on their nails and their hair. They had their lamps, but they had no oil. When the bridegroom shows up, they got no oil for their lamps. They start looking around for oil, trying to find some, but they can't find any immediately. So they miss the bridal parade, they finally find oil. They come to the, 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 um, the reception, which is what we call the, the banquet, the party, but now the door has been shut and they can't get in. So that's what sloth did for them, right? They were unprepared. There are four things that we are required of these bridesmaids, the same four things that they fail to do, sometimes what we fail to do, and Number one is that we have a responsibility of knowing what God desires for us. You know, if God has a desire for you, you know what that is. You, do you even know? You know the Bible tells you why God created you, what his desire is for your life. But if I'm slothful, I'm, not, I'm just not going to, you know, oh, okay, well, whatever. Whatever God's got, okay, we'll, we'll figure that out later. They had a responsibility for planning for their their 
future, their eternal future, they, they miss that. So we, we have that same requirement is that we have to prepare ourselves for eternity. How do we prepare ourselves for eternity? It's through, through the Lord Jesus Christ. They had the responsibility of zeroing in on what was most important. At that moment in time, the most important thing for them was to have their lamps ready and prepared for when the bridegroom came. And lastly, they were responsible to be sensitive to God's timing. And so this is the same true is true for us. And I think I want to zero in on time management for a moment because this is where slothfulness gets us. Many years ago, Ivy Lee, um, he was a management consultant. Charles Schwab, who was um, the chairman of the Bethlehem Steel, hired him to come in and help him to become more productive. Get better prepared, more productive. And so um, Ivy Lee um, came and he says, here's what I want you to do. It's going to be it's going to be really simple. Every night, you write down the six most important things you need to do the next day. And, and number them in sequence of importance. One, two, three, four, five, six. When you go to work the next day, you do the most important thing on that list. Number one, you do not move to number two until you've got number one completed. And even if it takes you all day, it doesn't matter. Obviously, the rest of it's not the most important. This is the most important. And so um, Charles Schwab took, took his idea and put it into practice. And he says, well, how much are you going to charge me for this idea? And he says, I'm not charging you anything. He says, you do it for several months, and then you write me a check for what you think it's worth. And Charles Schwab did. He did this for several months, and he wrote a check to um, Ivy Lee for $25,000 and said, this is the most amazing, the best idea that I have ever had. And during that course of time, and over the years, five years later, Bethlehem Steel Corporation became the largest independent steel producer in the entire world. Because Charles Schwab, every day, wrote his list of what's most important. Did number one, before he moved to number two, before he moved to number three, so let me challenge you, before you go to bed, get yourself prepared. What's the most important thing you need to do that next day? Write it down. What's number one? What's two? What's three? Because if you accomplish number one or two, or maybe you accomplish three out of the six, that means you have done the most important thing you can possibly do in your life. Now remember what I said about slothfulness, that we tend to neglect some of the most important issues of our lives, one of which is what? Our relationship with God. How many of us put that on our list of importance like down at the bottom and we never ever get to it? And so you're trying to live your life. God's in the back burner of your life. He's not really the most important thing. And yet the Bible says that everything in our lives flows out of that relationship with our Heavenly Father. Just a thought. Number two, there's no excuse for failing to try. No excuse for failing to try. So Jesus had this wealthy entrepreneur who's getting ready to go on an exotic trip. He gathers three guys. He says, hey, I'm going to give you $10,000. And he says, next day I'm going to give you $2,000. The third guy says, I'm going to give you $1,000. He leaves. He comes back. And uh, it's time to settle accounts. He finds out the first guy has got the $10,000. has doubled his amount. Way to go. Man. You, you did an incredible job. The guy with 2,000 doubled his stuff. Man, you're incredible. Way to go. I mean, God rewarded him. And the third guy, instead of doubling his, he, he said, well, well, 
now I didn't, I didn't, I know you're hard and I wasn't sure what to do with this. So I just buried it. I didn't do anything. Nothing. And Jesus had some pretty harsh words uh, to say this individual concerning what he had done. Now, why is that? Because Jesus was trying to make a point. God has given us much. And whom much has been given, much is required. God has never called us to sit on our assets. He's called us to get in the game. God's given you abilities. He's given you talents. He's given you income. He's given you time. And he expects us to use it and leverage it for kingdom purposes. See, if I'm slothful, though, I'm not going to do that, right? Because I don't begin anything. And then if I do begin something, I don't finish it. And if I try to finish it, I do it haphazardly. And, you know, I just let opportunities slip me by all the time. And so Jesus, his whole point is not only has the Lord given to each of us talents and abilities, but he's given us every person a measure of faith and free will. It's not, listen, of these people who are given, look, the guy who had $10,000, same reward to the guy that only had $2,000, right? The point of Jesus' parable is this. It's not a matter of how much you have been given. It's a matter of what do you do with what you have been given. People all the time say, well, you know, I'm not as talented as this person. I don't have the gift of this person, and I'm, I wish I could do this, that, and the other. Listen, God created you to be you. We want you to be you, but we just want you in the game. We want you in the kingdom game because life is like a, a gift certificate from God. You can either spend our lives on things infinitely more valuable than a department store merchandise, or we can squander our lives away on trivial pursuits, or we can spend our lives and allow our lives come to an end, and we haven't turned the certificate in for anything. Jesus says, man, it's time to get... Prepared, you got to try something, do something, get in the game, be productive. And then lastly, there's no excuse for a callous heart. And so Jesus, in the latter part of chapter 25, he says, uh, there's this, this judge and he's judging people according to whether they have done his will or not. And someone asks, you know, why are you not involved in some type of ministry? Do you respond by saying, well, I'm not a pastor. Listen, ministry is not limited to pastors. It's not limited to full or part-time. Listen, God has given us giftedness. He has given us his Holy Spirit. So if somebody comes across your path and their need is practical and material, you minister in a practical and a materialistic way. If they come across your path and it's an emotional or mental thing, then you you minister to their emotion, to their mind. If it's a spiritual need, you, miss it, you minister to their spiritual need. Look around, Jesus says. Open up your eyes and look. There are needs everywhere around us. But if I'm lethargic, I'm complacent, if I'm slothful, it's not that I don't see them, it's just that I don't want to do anything about them. You know, on our motorcycle ride, we, we minister to somebody every single day. Our very first stop came across a couple. The wife had just um, been through colon cancer the year before, still suffering from some of the residual effects of that. And uh, there's 14 ugly bikers standing around her on a beach, praying over her and her husband. 
we, we were at Mackinac Island and we come off the ferry and there's a, a young man standing there. We didn't think anything about it. We come back that night. We caught the very last ferry off the island and uh, his name was George and George came up to us because we got there a little early and says, no, I, I noticed that when you guys come off this, this boat, there's just something different about you guys. And he began sharing his story. He was actually from here in Columbus. And so here we are inside this um, building on the dock praying with George. And we, we ministered to him. We ministered to a woman who, who was sitting in the parking lot of a Harley dealership. And the husband and wife come up on the, on the bike. And the husband comes around the corner and he drops the bike. His wife's on the back of it. And so, you know, we get the bike off of her and him, and she's hurt her ankle. We just circle around her, we pray, and we were asking God's healing upon her ankle. And we, we were in a hotel in uh, Marquette, and we had Patrick, and Patrick is the owner of the hotel. He's about to retire. He's going through some issues, and we had him out front with us before we left that day, and he was in our circle. We were praying over him. We are praying over a guy who just received news who was in that hotel that something tragic had happened to a family member. He needed to get to a hospital. So he's, you know, he's like running out. So before you leave, we just pray over you. The point is simply this. There are needs all around us and God gives us opportunities every single day of our lives to meet those needs the best that we can at that given moment, right? So we're praying but God is ministering to the hearts and the lives of these individuals that we are praying over. And we thank God for every one of them. And there were others that we prayed with and prayed over. Listen, don't allow your heart to be callous. Don't allow your heart to become um, complacent. Don't allow your heart to become apathetic. And so Jesus says there's no excuse for, for a callous heart. So. There are five areas of spiritual growth at each stage you have to fight slothfulness. The first is salvation. Instead of trying to become a better person, you have to become a new person through Jesus Christ. The second one is small groups. We say that life is better connected with others because we were made for community. There is spiritual gifts. God has given you a unique shape, your spiritual gift, your heart, your passion, your ability, your personality, your experience is good, bad, and ugly that make up your unique shape that God uses to minister to the hearts and the lives of people. And there's seed sowing that's generosity. We want, we want to be, we don't want to be sporadic in our generosity. We don't want to just be systematic in our generosity. We want to become sacrificial, right? Where we actually have to make some kind of adjustment in our lifestyle because we become so generous with what God has given to us. I mean, we have property here. We got acreage behind us that's sitting empty. I just seem to think that, you know what? I believe that there's something God wants us to do with that land that will bless our community, that will help people find Jesus. And I don't know exactly what that is, but I think we need to be praying that prayer and dreaming that dream and letting God unfold for us what it is he wants to do through this congregation and ministering to the needs of this community. And then they're sharing your faith with others, discovering your mission. We're going to spend a whole series on that here in a few weeks. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you this morning, we just acknowledge, uh, God, that how many times in, in our lives that we've, we've, had, um, we've had opportunities to love somebody, but we, 
We let those opportunities go by. We had, we had so many opportunities to, to move in somebody's life and to not just be Jesus to them and just to stand in the gap for them. And, and Lord, we let, like the disciples, we just kind of let those opportunities pass us by. And Lord, um, when we just got to the place we didn't even care anymore, just didn't bother us anymore. But I pray that you, you will move us out of that complacency. I pray that we'll begin preparing our hearts and our lives to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and his moving and his opening doors of opportunity that we would be, Lord, prepared to walk through those doors when those opportunities arise. That we would just keep trying and never give up seeking to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. People need Jesus, Lord. So Lord, may we not give up trying to do everything in our power, human power, and with your divine power attached to our human power in reaching out to people. Where we work, in our neighborhoods, our schools, this community, communities around us, God, may, our, may you forgive us for the callousness of our hearts. God, may you break that shell and make them tender again. Make them moldable again. Make them pliable again. As you are forming and fashioning us into the image of Jesus. Would we want to hear those words? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful to the little things that I've given you. I'll make you, faith, I'll make you overseers of greater things in the days to come. God, I pray that for our church, that we will be faithful in the little things day in and day out. And God, that out of our faithfulness, God, you'll give us more. We pray for more, Lord, more opportunities, more, more opportunities to reach people, more opportunities to disciple people, more opportunities to minister to the physical needs and the mental and the emotional needs that are all around us. God, that we'll not just throw up our hands and Say, well, somebody else can take care of that, Father. I, I believe, Lord, you have equipped this church. You have gifted this church uh, to do those things that which you have called us. We know that you'll never call us to do what we are incapable of doing. So, Holy Spirit, may you come as fresh wind and fresh fire upon us here this morning. Move us out of our complacency. Move us out of our lethargic attitudes callousness of our hearts again father just make us so aware and so sensitive to the promptings of the holy spirit that god we will have prepared our hearts and our lives to move in the spirit says i pray this for each person here in the precious name of jesus amen let's stand together as we have our closing song and again thank you for being here and i pray that if you've never Put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be Savior and Lord of your life. This is the beginning step you have with God. Again, most of us, our natural instinct is I'm going to make myself a better person. I'm going to, I'm going to do all the self-help stuff. No, it doesn't work. If it did work, people just, that, that would be the end of it, right? No, you, don't, you need a new heart. God describes us in our lostness, in our, in our brokenness. He uses terms that would cause us to like, oh, no, Lord, not me. Yeah, you. 
Jesus came into the world to die on your behalf, to drink that cup of God's wrath where God's love and justice came together on the cross of Calvary so that through your faith and trust in Jesus alone for the salvation of your sin, the forgiveness, a new heart, a new life, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that enables us to do and be what God has created us to do and be. It comes with Jesus. So you can hear right here today, pray and ask Jesus to be Savior and Lord of your life. I'll be here after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that decision. I'm really challenging the church today. And we got a lot of things on the horizon in front of us that I believe that God is opening doors for, but we we will never do it if we just remain in slothfulness, right? We're too lethargic to love, too sluggish to stand, too, too mellow to move. And we won't prepare ourselves and we won't try and we just allow callousness to take our hearts over. Then we won't do anything. And we'll just be as we've always been. I think God's got greater things in store for us. Amen? Okay, that was weak. Amen? All right, better. Let's sing.